I'm Timothy, and I'm happiest when the temperature is over 100 degrees. And I'm Garrick, and I prefer to see my own breath in my bedroom. Well, there has been quite a bit of research over the past few years that seeks to answer the question, how many Christian students drop out of church during college? But until recently, nobody had really researched the issue of which Christian beliefs these students found it difficult to believe and to defend. That's the question that two researchers, Dr. Grady Adkins and Dr. Joshua Swindoll, have spent the past year asking. Today on Three Chords and the Truth, Grady and Josh are with us to discuss their findings. If you're concerned with helping students to keep their faith in college, this episode is for you. In the second half, we'll learn more about keeping the faith by taking a look at one of the greatest rock songs ever, Don't Stop Believin' by the 80s supergroup Journey. If you want to learn more about how to help your children hold on to their faith in college, take a look at the new 2019 edition of Perspectives on Family Ministry from our friends at BH Academic. That's Perspectives on Family Ministry. Learn more at bhacademic.com. Also, if you're considering a call to ministry, I want to invite you to attend Preview Day at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary on October 18th, 2019. Southern Seminary will provide meals and lodging for you and your immediate family, and plus I'm going to give you a code that gets you registered for free. Go to sbts.edu slash preview and use the code SBTS waived. That's SBTS W-A-I-V-E-D and enjoy great meals, great fellowship, and two nights in the hotel free of charge. Welcome to Three Chords and the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. I'm Timothy Paul Jones. Each week, my co-host Garrick Bailey and I tackle an issue related to apologetics. Then we go looking for God's truth by reviewing a moment from the history of rock and roll. Thank you for joining us today on Three Chords and the Truth, where we defend the faith, do justice, and dig for truth in rock and roll. Welcome to Three Chords and the Truth. I'm so glad that you have joined us today. I have here with me Grady Adkins and Josh Swindoll, who have recently completed research related to why students lose their faith, particularly in college. What are the beliefs about the Christian faith that students find difficult to believe and to defend? Josh and Grady, thank you for being here with us today. You're welcome. Great to be here. It is great to be here. Well, Josh, can you simply summarize your study for us and share some of the key findings from your particular study? Sure. My study surveyed public college students who were college seniors or recent college graduates. I sent out an online survey. Actually, Grady and I sent out the same methodological survey. We sent out social media ads and outlets. It was completed. I had over 400 respondents that responded to that survey that were public college seniors or graduates. And essentially, they answered six core Christian doctrinal statements, Christian orthodoxy statements, from two perspectives. Once from when they entered college as a freshman, what they believed about that statement as a freshman, incoming college student, and then as a college senior or recent graduate, what they believed about that question now. And of those six findings, the key kind of takeaways were there was diminishment in all six findings, significant diminishment in all six of those doctrinal statements. So that belief, and as you mentioned earlier, there's been a lot of studies on church practice and dropping out of church and declining faith, but really the the area of what do students believe and what's difficult to believe hasn't been explored. So this study particularly found that that of these six doctrinal statements and core truths of Christian orthodoxy, these students 
declined in what they believed when they entered college to what they believe now. And you did this with public universities, public institutions, including community colleges. Grady, you did the same thing, but with private colleges, both Christian and non-Christian institutions. What were the distinctions you found between Christian and non-Christian institutions in terms of the resilience, we might say, of their faith from when they entered college to when they left college? Yeah, this was really interesting as we divided out Christian universities from non-Christian, both being private universities, as Josh handled the public universities. But within that, the private non-Christian universities, the students who attended those was much like Josh's findings, where we had a decrease in confidence in those core Christian doctrines. Now, however, where the change happened was when we looked at the results from those students attending Christian universities, there was a slight decline, but it was not significant, which was a really interesting finding from that. Right. And we don't know for sure whether being in a Christian college is what caused that or not. There's no way that we can know that from the data we have. But here's what we do know, that certainly those that were in the Christian colleges, there was no statistically significant decline in their faith commitment. And that may be because those that went to Christian colleges were already more committed to begin with, or it may be because of the context they were in in college. But either way, it is very clear that students graduating from or in their senior years in the Christian institutions actually had a much more resilient and strong faith than those that were in secular institutions, we might say. So, Grady, which of the findings, of all these findings from this research, which ones did you find most surprising? things that you expected to find and didn't find, or you didn't find that you did expect to find. I asked the students what belief about Christianity is difficult to defend or believe, and there was a difference among the students attending private Christian schools versus private non-Christian. Largely, across the board, the problem of evil and suffering, human suffering, that was the same. All said, that is a great issue that they have difficulty defending. However, if you go down a little bit further, students from private non-Christian schools had difficulty defending the issues surrounding the Bible versus students at Christian schools had difficulty defending gender roles and, and identity issues. I think that was one of the things that I found most surprising in the study from both of you. I did not expect the problem of evil and suffering to be number one in every single sample. That was a fascinating thing. Every sample for both of you in all of the institutions you surveyed, problem of evil is number one. And it's a reminder that from my perspective, that's not a problem. And the reason it's not a problem from my perspective is because I know that Alvin Plantinga actually already dealt with the logical problem of evil years ago and wrote a book on it that even secular philosophers admit dealt with the logical problem problem of evil. And yet, at a practical level of people in college, they don't know that issue's been dealt with. Well, in addition to the surveys, both of you conducted follow-up interviews with college students as well as recent college graduates. Can you describe, Josh, some of the things that you learned in these interviews? So I, I conducted eight follow-up interviews with participants from my study. And of those things, three major themes emerged, one being the theme of relationships being a significant factor and that relates to diminishment of confidence in belief or just a factor of 
change. The other being exposure, the environment, college setting, new environment away from home, those things. And church attendance and religious activity was probably, for me, one of the most significant findings of my public college data. So, you know, I was following up with students that may or may not have been a Christian or may or may not have identified as a Christian, and they were on a public college university, and they had a diminishment of change and a change in belief. And overwhelmingly, a theme that emerged, I think, from six of those eight interviews was either the practice of or non-practice of church attendance being a significant player in what they believe now versus what they used to believe. So I think that's important for us as Christian educators and academic scholars and those who seek to prepare young minds and young hearts and shape affections is we don't forget about the significance of that. Sometimes we take it for granted. Josh, what would you encourage churches to do as a result of these findings? What are some things if you could say, all right, churches do this one thing as a result of these findings, what would your one thing be that you'd encourage a church to do? I would encourage churches to explore a more systematic and robust approach to discipleship within the structures of their church. So if it's a church structure that has Sunday school classes from children to youth ministries to college ministries, begin to research and look at ideas that might address some of these topics of human suffering and the problem of evil and core Christian doctrine and orthodoxy, and really try to increase the level of belief that children and youth have prior to entering college. Uh, That was one of my key findings as well. wasn't really a target focus of my research, but from precedent literature and the levels of belief that students had decades ago was higher than the level of belief students have today. So maybe just have a more coherent, systematic approach to discipleship within the church and home. Right. Those findings were really important to do with the problem of evil we've already talked about was number one. But then after that followed the existence of God, the authority of Scripture, understanding of human sexuality. Those top things that they struggled with, those ought to be a guide for our discipleship. These are issues we need to help students learn to deal with, to understand, and to face, and to be able to articulate a clear biblical worldview in those areas. What about you, Grady? What would you say, if I could get churches to do one thing? Here's what it would be as a result of this. Well, I have to say as a past children's pastor and family pastor that I agree with Josh and it needs to start young. It doesn't have to start with this vast apologetics curriculum with children, but it needs to start young in the elementary years of teaching foundational truths. Now is the time for the most dangerous portion of our program. It is the moment at which we reach into the infinity gauntlet, and if we do this wrongly, and we snap inadvertently half of all humanity upon the earth, will perish. And so we bravely reach within the infinity gauntlet and draw out one of the most perplexing questions that the human race has faced. And this week's question we are drawing out now. And the question is this. Which one is better and why? Mutant powers or a high concentration of midichlorians? Mutant powers 
or a high concentration of midichlorians. So we are once again, as always, combining two universes. Mutant Powers is from the Marvel Universe. It is what makes the X-Men the X-Men and the Brotherhood of Mutants the Brotherhood of Mutants. And a high concentration of midichlorians comes from the Star Wars Universe and is what gives you the capacity to be connected to the Force. And so which is better, Josh, and why? A high concentration of midichlorians or mutant powers? Oh, that's simple. High concentration, midichlorians, no doubt. Why is reason, that? Darth Vader. That's the reason. You need to be connected to the Force. You need higher concentrations of that. Mutant powers, they're not going to overcome it. It's only going to be by the Force. So, so you're saying that a mutant would be defeated by somebody with the Force. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I have to give my vote at this point, and this time I agree with those who are on the show with me. My agreement is that, that midichlorians and the Force is better. Here's why. Mutants only can do one thing. Each mutant has one power they can do one thing, and if you don't happen to have a mutant power that can defeat that Jedi instantly, the Jedi, if nothing else, can force choke you, can do something else, make something fall on you, and even if you are a mutant, it is going to have an impact and an effect on you. The only exception I can think of to this is Wolverine, because pretty much whatever you do to Wolverine, he just pretty much comes back completely. But mutants as a whole are not Wolverine. And so I have to say midichlorians are better than having mutant powers. Now, as always, if you disagree with our consensus on this show, you are free to write to us to let us know. And if you do, we will feature your question and your argument and prove why you are still wrong. Yeah, just know you're wrong. Exactly. Like you, can, you can disagree, but you're wrong. And we will tell you why Absolutely. you're wrong on the show. And so thank you for joining us this week on Three Chords and the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. Rock and roll is one of the greatest inventions in human history and one of the supreme expressions of common grace. The way we see it, the golden age of this invention began with the summer of love and ended with grunge. And that's why each week in the second half of this program, Garrick and I review one of our favorite songs and go digging for divine truth in classic rock. This is Timothy from the 1970s. And this is Garrick from the 1980s. Timothy, can I ask you a question? What is the greatest rock song of all time? Well, let's first think about what are some candidates mm. for this particular honor. All right, you start. Okay. One of the things I looked up on some different lists, and one of the songs that made it to the top of the list, in several different lists, was Like a Rolling Stone by Bob Dylan. But okay. I really don't think about that as a rock song. It's a great song. Right. It truly is. And, and it's really long. And so I don't think it has the honor, but several other people thought that it did. It is an excellent song. Well, a song that we've mentioned many, many times, and I entirely agree with whatever list this shows up on, would be All Along the Watchtower, the Jimi Hendrix version. Right. The Jimi right. Hendrix version, that has to be in anyone's list of the top five. Even if it's not number one, it's certainly in the top five. 
What about this? Okay, so one of my all-time favorites would be Guns N' Roses' Sweet Child O' Mine. We have to do that sometime on this. I don't know if there's any meaning. There's, there's no really... theological meaning yeah. to that song, but let's do it anyway because it's an amazing song. Yeah, so... But surely, maybe maybe it's ultimately about about Christmas. And it's about <laughs> maybe. Sweet Child of Mine. We'll, we'll think of it that way. We'll, we'll figure out something to repurpose say. Repurpose that song for Christmas. That's right. <laughs> Highway to Hell by ACDC has to be up there as well. But on the pop side of rock particularly, one of the songs that has to be up there, and I think it's the number one or close to to it, and that is Don't Stop Believing by Journey. Just a small town girl living in a lonely world. This is a song that brings a certain person, a very important figure in my life, a former boss of mine who's also a friend, brought me into ministry in my young 20s. And even though I grew up in the 80s and loved 80s music, I'd kind of left it behind because it, it wasn't cool at that time. In the late 90s, early 2000s, it wasn't cool to love the 80s back then. And this man by the name of Glenn Austell, just that's all he played in the office was 80s super group music and journey probably more than any, and it just reignited a passion for this wonderful, the best decade, in my opinion. But it also, when I hear Journey, especially Don't Stop Believing, it's this constant reminder in my life of this dear brother, this man who's so important to me. Well, I think the only personal connection I actually have as I think about this particular song is it is one of the first songs we have looked at that I didn't hear first in an anti-rock music seminar. I was going to ask you. I don't you, think I ever heard that one. I was going to ask you. That's because there's nothing inside the song that could possibly be taken for any type of deep content, more or less. That's why. So. And of course, it has one of the greatest male oh. rock vocalists of all time. I think the greatest vocalist ever, Steve Perry. Yeah. I mean, there aren't yeah. very many people I would put in that pantheon of great male vocalists. There'd be Robert Plant of Led Zeppelin, even though I'm not a huge Led Zeppelin fan. Freddie Mercury, yes, Queen. Yes. Sammy Hagar, who would be one of my top uh, in that. Right. But great vocalists. The vocals in this song particularly are amazing. Just a city boy Born and raised in South Detroit He took the midnight train going This particular song, though, is about belief or about believing. And what we're going to talk about today is believing. What yeah. do we even mean? What are we talking about when we talk about believing? But first, let's dig a little deeper actually into even how this song came into existence. But the song Don't Stop Believing, it actually begins not with Steve Perry and the rest of Journey, but with the band's keyboardist whose name is Jonathan Kane. Now, Jonathan Kane, he had moved from Chicago to Los Angeles, and he was trying to make it in the music business. And in the early 70s, he would call his dad, he said at times, and he would say to his dad, I'm just going to quit. I'm going to come back home to Chicago. I'm going to leave Los Angeles behind. I'm just coming back. And his dad would say to him, don't stop believing. And his dad would tell him that repeatedly. And so later on, Jonathan Cain wrote the chorus that goes, don't stop believing, hold on to that feeling, don't stop believing. He didn't have the next 
part of that. He just had the first part of that's that. Fine. That's all he you needed. He had a great It's the only on part that. that matters. So, and when they were working on the music for the album Escape, they were working on this album, and Jonathan Kane and Steve Perry finished the song that Jonathan Kane had started. The lyrics don't mean a lot. It's kind of this vague story of two people from two different places who are longing for love, longing for connection. And the music, though, yeah. is what captures this far more than the words. S- sort of from two different places. I mean, one of these places, at least one of these places doesn't even exist. Exactly. There's, who's ever heard of South Detroit? And they even admit there is no such place as South Detroit. They just wanted it to fit the it's music. So fit. they threw in we another, another word. syllable. Right That's right. So they're born and raised in a place that doesn't exist, oh. South Detroit. But that's what they're really doing. They are making the words fit the music. And the most meaningless part of the words is that repeated line, streetlight people. Streetlight people. Now, is this is streetlight? Are we is this just like two observations? Or is streetlight a is it modifying people? Is this a, a type of people? Or were they hallucinating? I, or they have completely, which is actually true, they this have is two completely yeah. different versions. So Steve Perry and Jonathan Kane have two totally different versions of what they meant by streetlight people. So Jonathan Kane said he got this from when he was driving up and down the Sunset Strip in Los Angeles and just kind of thinking of all these people under the streetlights. And Steve Perry says he was on the 10th floor of a hotel in Detroit at about 2 o'clock in the morning after a show and looked down and was seeing people move in and out mm. of the streetlights below him, which honestly to me sounds a lot yeah. more believable for the song itself, and at least it gets Detroit in there was, somewhere, so, even if he, there is no South Detroit. I was going to say, Detroit. was hotel in South Detroit? Or, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So let's think about it. What does this song even mean when it says don't stop believing. And to, to help set us up for that, let's think about how what this song has to say is similar to and different from mm. the belief that is central in Christian faith. So let's think about faith in, in Christianity, faith in Christian theology. What is faith from a Christian perspective? Yeah, it seems that in Scripture we have at least two aspects of faith. Uh, we see an assent, to agree with, to affirm, to believe in an object, something outside of ourself. I believe that, right? And insert your, you know, your fancy Latin phrase here that we've been saying for a long time. Very quote. There you yes. go. <laughs> yes. So there's one aspect, right? Something something outside of ourselves that we believe into. But also we see a personal allegiance. So this is no longer, it's still to an object outside of ourself, but we're no longer speaking just intellectual terms of knowledge, but a commitment, a, a surrender to. My favorite theologian, Herman Bovink, says that faith is also a matter of knowledge and truth, but above all, it is trust and surrender to God. So that's that objective ascent and personal allegiance. So there's two aspects always to faith in Scripture. We see that, I think, in the Bible. Yeah, and both of them to this, the common theme is both of these are to something bigger than us outside of ourselves. 
And not only is it something outside of ourselves, but of course, biblically, yes. the only appropriate object right. is God as he has revealed himself. That's right. the only appropriate object ultimately for us as believers in Jesus. God, as he has revealed himself in Christ, is the only appropriate object of faith. But we see these two things. This isn't something that theologians have imposed hundreds of years later on the Bible. We see these actually in the scriptures. You see this idea of faith as assent or ascensus. We see that in Hebrews chapter 11, where it says, whoever would approach God must believe that he is, or believe that he exists. We see that in 1 John, where John writes, who is it that conquers the world but the one who believes that Mm-hmm. Jesus is God's son. There are certain facts There's content. that must yes. be believed. There is content. And so one way we could say this is that faith is more than merely assent, but it can never be less than assent. Yeah, and from the beginning, the Christian church has stated that which we give our assent to, right? The earliest creeds, confessions, the things that we have said that to be true, that we hold to be most dear and essential to the faith. We believe that and then you fill in the blank. So so yeah, it's it's always existed. Now, if you go to the opposite and you remove on the other hand the personal allegiance, that's dangerous too. Yes. So going to the other extreme doesn't help us. If you say it's only about the facts that you believe and you reduce faith to nothing more than asserting and affirming certain facts, that's dangerous too. That's what James warns us against when he says that the demons believe and shudder, that he's saying, look, it's not enough merely to know and to believe intellectually the right facts. There has to be a personal allegiance as well. And I love what John Calvin said in the in book three of the Institutes on this. He said, God's word is not received by faith when it flits about on top of the mind, but when it roots itself in the depths of the heart. So as we've said, faith is both assent believing certain facts, and it is allegiance, having a personal, transforming, loving commitment. Both of those are necessary for authentic faith. And we've looked at what happens when you pull one or the other out, but there's also something else that happens in our world, and that is that sometimes people pull both of these out and still call it faith. That is to say, somebody says, just have faith that things are going to get better. Just have faith in yourself. And ultimately, that's what we have in the song, Don't Stop Believing. It is not simply don't stop believing in certain facts. It is not merely don't stop believing in this kind of awareness of absolute dependence on something greater than yourself. Ultimately, it is don't stop believing in your own dreams, plans, in the possibility of things in your life getting better. Yeah. You're finally getting your dreams. That's the type of faith we see in don't stop believing, but it's also sometimes what we see in our churches. Yeah, it's a, a sense of hope in the song, but it is a an optimistic hope, not the Christian hope for what comes in the future from God that we are all expectantly waiting for and living in light of, but it is a it is an optimistic hope based upon your own continued efforts, right? Just keep grinding, just keep at it. Work hard, just keep at it, and things will work out. 
and this is the most American expression of faith, I think, that there yep. is, where it's that American lie that if you just try hard, if you just keep going, if you just put your best into it, you can be anything and you can achieve your dreams. And that's just not true. And even if it were true, it's not what faith is. Yeah. Faith is something that is a confidence in someone outside of and beyond ourselves. But this type of self-confidence masquerading as faith is what Christian Smith described in his book, Soul Searching. And in that book, he surveyed hundreds of teenagers and discovered that most teenagers in the United States operated with a faith, quote unquote, that was really what he called moralistic, therapeutic Deism. And what moralistic therapeutic deism is basically saying that the purpose of religion is to help me do better. The purpose of faith is to make me feel better. And the purpose of God is to stay in the background until I need him. And that's this type of quote unquote faith that we're talking about. And it, it is the widespread prevalent sense of faith, the widest usage of the word that we see kind of in, in popular culture today. And that's why when we are teaching and preaching in our churches, when we talk about faith and believing, we have to define for our people what we are talking about, because their definition of faith is probably a lot more like the song by Journey mm. than it is anything in the New Testament. Yeah, Absolutely. And so, though we would say that the type of believing we see in the song is not the kind of faith that we speak of, hold to, this type of faith that is not some weaker form of knowing, but that to Christians is, is certainty itself. Certainty of faith is it's just as firm as knowledge, though it's more, as, as Bavink would say, more intense, more unshakable, more ineradicable. Right, And this is not the faith of Journey's song, but there's some interesting stories of faith in their lives, apart from the song, though, right? There really are, and especially with Jonathan Cain, who wrote this song, right. who initiated the writing of this song. So, in 1958, Jonathan Cain had prayed to God when there was a fire in Chicago, and there were 92 children that were trapped in a Catholic school in Chicago, and he cried out to God, and he prayed for God to save those children. But sadly, all those children, as well as three nuns, died in this fire. And Jonathan Cain said he turned away from God mm. at that point. But then in 1996, something interesting happened in 1996. Steve Perry brought a Bible to the studio as inspiration when they were writing the lyrics for the Trial by Fire album. Which now, I'm going to have to go check out now. There's like, got to be the this, this story behind that. And there really are some things woven into that Trial by Fire huh. album that seem to be drawn hmm. from Scripture. But Steve Perry brought in a Bible as inspiration for their lyrics. And Jonathan Cain started reading the Bible, and he rededicated his life to Christ. And he later said, just reflecting back on when he had walked away from faith in 1958, he said, when those children died, I believe now that Jesus wept. I don't believe he really abandoned us at all. Mm. In other words, he recognized that he was able to reconcile this horrible event he'd experienced with the reality 
of who God was. And he said, Jesus wept for the children. He recognized that God cares for us in our suffering. Now, I'll also have to admit, things get a little strange with Jonathan Cain here because it does get a little weird. In 2014, he met prosperity gospel pastor Paula White questionable doctrine of the Trinity, Paula White, and the one who once said, anyone who tells you to deny yourself is from Satan, which is what that's, Jesus yeah, said. <laughs> I don't know what to do with that. So he meets Paula White in 2014, and it gets stranger. In 2015, he married Paula White. So Jonathan Cain, who wrote the song, Don't Stop Believing," is now married to Paula White, and he has actually now released two Christian albums. And I'm completely uncertain as to what to do with this. I do know this about the song Don't Stop Believing." It's still an amazing song yes. in spite of no all matter. of this. But it's not a great place to get your theology of faith because confidence in self always leaves us empty. And I think you see that in some words recently from Steve Perry, who co-wrote the song Don't Stop Believing" with Jonathan Cain. Steve Perry said, you want to know what I did after I left Journey? I visited my mom's grave a lot. He said, here I am. I'm an only child, just missing them all. I used to think, Steve Perry said, if I became a performer and everybody loved me, that I wouldn't have to go through these things. But guess what? There's nowhere to run. That's what Steve Perry said, looking back on his life, that there's nowhere to run. This self-referential faith, this self-confidence, it just leaves you empty and dry. And Steve Perry says there's just nowhere to run, except we as Christians know that there actually is somewhere to run. And it's not a faith in ourselves. It is a faith in someone beyond ourselves about whom we believe particular facts and truths and also to whom we commit our lives and that we receive through him and in him a faith that never lets us go. Thank you for joining us today. If you want to connect with the two of us, check out threechordsapologetics.com. That's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. If you're interested in choosing one of the songs we review in the future or in picking up Three Chords and the Truth merchandise, go to patreon.com slash threechordsandthetruth. My name is Timothy Paul Jones, and I'm already looking forward to joining you next time on Three Chords and the Truth. I try. Don't fall.